Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I'm joined by Kira Farrell, who is the Library and Collections Manager at the Kennel Club in London. The Kennel Club is the UK's largest organisation dedicated to protecting and promoting the health and welfare of dogs. The Kennel Club has a long history and was founded in 1873. It does many things, including running the Crufts Dog Show, regulating breeds, and providing information to dog owners in terms of health, training, and breeding, and is also active in lobbying for canine welfare. Welcome, Kira. Hello, Richard. Nice to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. Okay, uh, you have a wonderful library. Can you uh, describe it to us, describe it to the listeners? Right, well, I'm sitting here now because it's a normal working day for me in London. The library is a reference library, but it is open to the public. Anybody may come and use it. Um, The space I'm in now is our main library space. It holds about 10,000 volumes. It's uh, here in our headquarters at the Kennel Club in Mayfair in London. As well as our library space, which we have here, we also have an archive room. We store a number of... um, uh, materials off the site as well and we also have a digitization program so we're actively digitizing a lot of the material we have but the bulk of the collection it's a very very traditional monograph based library okay so there are books published right up until the present day Uh and as well as uh, rare and collectible books dating back through the history of dog books that's correct and it's not just books we hold special collections as well because we are a unique repository of canine information. We have special collections that include things like photographs, personal letters, kennel records, things that are technically associated with how you breed and manage dogs, paperwork relating to that, from people who have been big names in dog breeding, dog showing and dog activities over the years. Uh, But uh, books, journals and uh, technical publications which are called stud books and breed records make up the bulk of what we have here. Okay, Um, so who who comes into the library? Who, who uses your materials and your books? And what are they looking for? Well, they can be looking for anything to do with dogs. As you would expect, most of our users are people who know about are in, or are involved with dogs already. Those include our own staff. About one-third of the queries we do every year are generated from our own colleagues who may be doing it as part of their own work into health, into press, uh, related to dogs, uh, they, they may need to know about canine history, so they are the people who come to us on a daily basis. We also have about two-thirds of our queries come from external visitors. Now, typically, as I said, there are people who are involved with dogs. They may be people who breed or show a particular breed of dogs. They may be involved in a dog club. They may be involved in running activities about dogs. And they're usually involved in looking for something to do with their breed's history. Uh, they may also have anniversaries for their clubs coming up. Some uh, dog breeding and showing has been going on as a leisure activity since the mid-Victorian period. So there are clubs that are celebrating 100 years of operation or 150 years of operation in some cases, and they're looking to do historical research. Then you get people who are looking to do the equivalent of genealogy, but for dogs, which is pedigree research. So they may be looking into their own dog's background and family history, and they will do that by coming to us because we hold those records. We also work with uh, academics extensively, so people in universities who may be doing research into particular aspects 
of the dog in history, the dog as member of society, dog's working function, their function in leisure, or products and services around dogs. So we do lots of research, or we partner with a lot of people who are doing that sort of research. But basically, if you've got a question about a dog, we try to answer it. So as I was browsing your website, I noticed um, there's certain terms that are repeated again and again. And you just mentioned uh -huh. one, pedigree research. But I also saw that you offered breeding records and also something called, uh, or things called stud books. Could you yes. explain what those three areas are to us? Well, um, pedigree research is, as I said, it's exactly the same as human genealogy. It's looking into a dog's parentage and ancestry. Now, we use the word pedigree to mean a dog that's of proven ancestry for a particular breed of dog. Well before, I mean, dogs have been working with people for millennia, and over the years they've developed into particular types. So you've got sight hands, you've got scent hands, you've got terriers that go digging, you've got sheep dogs that round up your flocks and things like that. And in the Victorian period, these were uh, codified into particular breeds of dog. To be a pedigree dog, a dog needs to have two parents of the same breed, and they need to have two parents of the same breed, and they need to have two parents of the same breed going back from there. So that is pedigree and breeding history. It's looking into the ancestry of particular dogs of particular breeds. Now, we deal with dogs who are crossbreeds as well because they're involved in lots of our sporting activities and, of course, we're interested in the welfare of all dogs. But at the core of our records are these pedigree dogs. We recognise 220 different pedigree dogs, um, breeds of dog in the UK, and different countries, depending on what their population of dogs, will, rep will have something similar, or they may have dogs that are just local to their particular country. So uh, that's what that is about. Now, the stud books, that's an interesting word. Stud books were something that you see in, in all pedigree animals. Um, so you'll see it in pedigree horses, cattle, all different sorts of animals that have uh, pedigree lines. And stud books, again, are uh, a means that people used to choose what might be the best breeding decisions to make to improve their stock. In the Kennel Club, it's used in a slightly different way. We first published the stud book the year after we were founded in 1874. And what that was looking at was dogs and their performance at competitive dog showing. Competitive dog showing started in 1869. So it was looking at the dogs who had done well at those shows and recording their results first, second and third and so on. And again, that was to help early people, uh, early breeders who were involved in this quite new hobby to make sensible decisions about how they might like to breed their dogs in the future. So the stud book really for us in the Kennel Club is a record of who's won what at dog shows. Right, I see. By so, who I mean the dogs, not the owners. So if you wanted to breed mm -hmm. the most effective, I don't know, gun dog or yeah. show dog, mm -hmm. then you could reference certain breeding lines in families and then yes. you would approach their owners. Yes. Okay, and make a deal. You would indeed, yeah. I mean, the community then was very, very small, so all of these people would have known each other and seen each other at competitive events. So the stud book was a means of going, oh, he's won prizes at this particular dog show, or he's performed well at this particular field trial or activity. This might be good stock for making my breeding decisions. Right. These days it's much more sophisticated. It involves um, genetic testing as well um, to establish whether dogs are closely related, whether they're carrying particular genetic markers for specific diseases. And it's now done with a very, very powerful tool that's on our website called Mate Select whereby you input your dog's details, you put in details of the dog you might like to breed with, and it will crunch a huge amount of data and tell you if that's a sensible breeding decision or not. Wow. Um, 
things but have the moved. The roots of that are in our stud books that we hold here in the library. Ah. Um, so you mentioned shows, but you also briefly yes. touched on working dogs. So I can think of uh, uh, dogs with uh, the police. I can think of dogs at airports, sniffer dogs, la yep. uh, guide dogs, uh, mm -hmm. gun dogs. Indeed, um, are there materials relating to those types of animals? Yes, yep, we do. We keep lots of information about all the tasks that dogs do as members of society. Now, dogs in the past did a lot more in terms of work than they do now because there were certain agricultural tasks um, and tasks like vermin control that could only really be done by dogs. The reason why sh dog showing, dog breeding and dog activities, sporting activities developed as hobbies in the Victorian period was partly as a byproduct of industrialization and the fact that some of these dogs were losing their working function. So as a means of preserving that, the competition scene grew up whereby they can demonstrate those skills through. Uh, specific sports, they will be the sports of obedience, agility, working trials, field trials and so on. And they help dogs demonstrate the skills that they would have used as working gun dogs um, and as service dogs. Now we have lots of dogs work, working into the armed forces and lots of those officers also compete with their dogs in, in competitions called working trials and this is where these dogs get to demonstrate things like their seeking out and finding skills, their search and rescue skills, their scenting skills, their ability to climb over obstacles and the other things that they will use in their working lives as service dogs. But this is a competitive version of that which people do for, for fun and for to keep their dogs healthy and stimulated. So we run those activities as well as the traditional confirmation dog shows that you'll know from Crusts and from Westminster Dog Show and from, from some of the other famous dog shows. Wow. So just incidentally, how many people does the Kennel Club employ? Because it sounds like you're doing many, many things. Yes, we're a big organisation. So um, we directly employ about uh, over 200 people. Right. Um, we're mostly based here in London in our headquarters, which is uh, where the library and our gallery and our picture archive are situated. Um, but we do have uh, other business premises around the country as well. Okay, so back to the library. What's the, mm -hmm. what's the oldest book you have in, in your library? The oldest book in the collection is called Laws of the Forest, a treatise on the laws of the forest. It uh, is from 1598 and it was written by John Manwood who was a magistrate and a barrister in Elizabethan London and he did something that was novel for the period. He took all the laws and statutes pertaining to the countryside and countryside management, specifically the forested areas where you could hunt and translated them from legal French and from Latin into English. He circulated this first among his legal colleagues and they found it interesting and he published it and we have a first published edition of that from 1598 with the original leather boards. So what were some of those laws of the forest? Well, it governs, the laws of the forest were were very varied because the forest at that time took up most of the countryside. It meant land that was for hunting rather than arable land that was enclosed for growing crops. It belonged directly to the crown, um, but obviously people did have the right to live and work and carry out various activities in the forest. So this book covers the lot from who's allowed to cut down trees, who's allowed to gather mushrooms, who's allowed to drive their swine through the forest, etc. But we're interested in the dog chapter and that gets you into who's allowed what kind of dog really and for what task. So it sets out that terriers and cur dogs, which would just be a dog for your personal protection or for looking after your property, those dogs were uh, could be owned by anybody. But 
spaniels were restricted to the aristocracy and so were mm, kinds of hounds, certain kinds of hounds that could be used in the pursuit of deer. Now spaniels at the time were being used in the sport of falconry, so the spaniels is exactly what a spaniel still does, which is goes into low cover and springs up birds, but this is for people working with falcons of that kind of time. And the hounds are used for pursuit of deer and other prey animals. Now those dogs are restricted to aristocrats only, and that's what is set out in this book. Right, that's a very English book to have class mm-hmm. levels for dog ownership. Indeed so. <laughs> okay, um, is there another book perhaps that stands out to you in terms of maybe social significance for dogs, maybe in terms of welfare or health or, or, or breeding? Is there one that jumps out to you? There, there are two that I think are significant and again they're from a similar period. The first one is uh, De Cannabis Britannicus, which is by the English title is known as Of English Dogs. That was written in the 1570s but wasn't translated into English from Latin until the 1607, so the early 17th century. And that is, uh, was written by Dr. John Keyes. Again, a great Elizabethan, he was the physician at the court of Elizabeth I and he had, as a scientist, a, a forensic eye. And what he did was he described all of the breeds of dogs that he saw around him, or breed types, I suppose we'll call them at this point, in, in the England of the time. And he described lots of the dogs that we still have today. So there are terriers, there are harriers, there are greyhounds, there are setters, there are spaniels, there are working sheep dogs, there are mastiffs. And he also described dogs that had more humble working tasks, and he described them under the terms curs or mongrels, and they include things like the turnspit dog, now extinct, whose uh, awful job it was to, was to run like a hamster in a wheel in the kitchens of the Elizabethan gentry to move a chain that kept the meat moving over their fire. Now, he uses very plain language in this book. It's like reading about dogs that you know. It's like, it, I think, as a... It's very important for us, I think, because one of the things we do in the Kennel Club is we help people make sensible decisions about what's the right dog for their home and for their lifestyle. And it's useful for people to know a little bit about the history of their dogs, to know that these dogs have been bred for centuries and they have developed predictable traits as a result. So when people read about the terrier in this book, that he goes into the ground, that he goes after foxes and badgers and hares under the ground, that he digs, that when he bites he doesn't let go because he's tenacious and that's his job as a vermin control, for vermin control or small prey hunting. Well, anyone who's got a terrier knows that they love digging, that they will you know, attach themselves to your socks or your bag or anything they can find and shake it like a rat till it's dead. Um, you need to know that if you're taking on a terrier that they need lots of stimulation, that they're very active little dogs that are are bred to work. Um, It's the same when we look at things like um, in this book. The uh, sheep dogs, for example, it describes dogs that can perform very complex tasks quite a long way away from their masters while they're rounding up sheep, so they're very intelligent. And this is why you see these breeds being used now as service dogs a lot of the time with the police and with the military, as well as their traditional tasks as herders. And again, you would recommend that anyone who's getting one of these dogs as a pet make sure that they've got lots of stimulating activity. So I think that book is uh, it's great. It's the first time you see all these breeds described in one place, but they really relate to their modern counterparts really well, and it, re- it helps people to understand what their modern dog is like. It's because it's related to these much more ancient dogs. We have another book, which is uh, Veterinary Remedies, and that's from the late 17th century. It's from 
So was there, was there a golden age for dog books? And I'm wondering about the Victorian era, if yes. that was a wonderful age for publishing dog books. It's a wonderful age for publishing anything to do with popular science and with leisure. It's the first time in a, a long period when ordinary people have got the opportunity to pursue hobbies. They've got some free time. They are not bound to their workplace seven days a week. With increased industrialization, some of their tasks have become easier. They've got some leisure time to pursue a hobby. You've also seen in the Victorian period a change in sensibility about how we treat animals. In starting from the 18th, 1835 is the first time we see animal welfare legislation being passed, um, specifically outlawing cruel treatment of animals. And that affected some of the ways in which people related to animals and to dogs in particular. So you see things like rat pits going by the wayside, you see fighting sports going by the wayside, and people wanting to pursue this new hobby of breeding and showing dogs in a benign way that doesn't hurt the dog. It appeals to the Victorian sensibility for classification. So this is why you begin to see a much uh, tighter definition of breeds of dogs, less interbreeding, and a, a means of uh, looking at breeding as a means of uh, perfecting particular types of dogs. Um, and it's a hobby that can be pursued by people of all classes. It, uh, it has kind of two, two roots to it. The men who used to do fighting and rat pitting and all that sort of stuff in pubs start showing fancy dogs in pubs as a, as a hobby. They call it fancy dogs, so dogs that are a bit more refined than maybe the rough terriers they used before. And then you've got Queen Victoria influencing aristocratic women with her interest in breeding dogs as a hobby. And these two strands come together in the 1850s with the public dog show, um, which anybody could enter. And for a small fee, anybody could go to see as well. You didn't even need to have a dog. So you could go and have a look there. So what's from up, obviously, what you're going to get with this is a huge slew of literature that goes with it. Can you tell us about the fiction in the library? Fiction in the library actually skews very much, as you were talking about Black Beauty, towards children's fiction. Um, you, we have a gallery as well, and a lot of our very well-known artists who specialise in canine subjects, as well as doing portrait commissions, also did a great deal of illustration work. So we have a large collection of books that involve illustration by people who were prominent fine artists, as well as book illustrators. Um, you see all different sorts of very well-known authors wrote books that were about dogs, um, lots of adventure stories, as you would imagine, but also sentimental, welfare-based subjects, similar to what you will get with Black Beauty. But I'm really interested in them for the illustrations because it's nice to see and 
contrast that with the work that you see these fine artists doing in their uh, in their commissioned portrait work as well. But like, yeah, R Rudyard Kipling has Thy Servant a Dog about Booth, the the little terrier. That's a very that was a popular one. And then you see people like Jack London who are writing books about uh, dogs in in very very adventurous settings as well, like White Fang. Um, but it's it's an enduringly popular subject and a great deal of literature, particularly children's literature, is still published about dogs today. You also see the canine memoir, the rescue memoir, is a big strand in contemporary publishing as well, where people will talk about how um, a dog, you know, they may, they may be having particularly difficult circumstances in their life and they will encounter a dog or take on a dog who's from a troubled background too. So you get a lot of literature now about how people and dogs help each other. But this is what you see in all literature about dogs. It's all about the bond with humans and how they work together. And perhaps you could explain, you mentioned it very briefly at the start of the interview, but you said about how the library has adapted to the, the modern digital age. Yes. How has it changed? Now, one of our tasks here in the Kennel Club Library is to keep records of all of these 6,000 canine events that take place in the UK every year. So you've got a regular circuit of dog shows for specific breeds and for all breeds, and you've got all these sporting activities that take place, and they all publish catalogues. So people are going off to dog shows this weekend, we'll get a catalogue which tells you which dogs are competing, and then they get marked up by the particular show society that runs that event with the winners, and that catalogue gets sent into us here in the Kennel Club, and that's what's used to compile the stud book, which is that results record. Now we need to keep those catalogues as well. It's not just about who's won, it's about who's taken part. So we want to preserve those. We want to see every entrance, every dog. We need to know where they're from in the country. Uh, we need to know who's been advertising. That's, in, in, that's information that is of absolute crucial importance to people who uh, come to do research here, is historical advertisements, and they're all held in these catalogues. But as you would imagine, that means we grow every year and it's not possible for us to continue taking all of this in in paper format. So we're in the process of digitizing that. We started in, we've done the digitization now for that particular element. Uh, we started in 1960, so we're looking at, you know, about 50 years worth of material. We've digitized a million, and we've done a million and a half page impressions, and we are now in the process of indexing that material. It's a big project. Um, we will have other things that we will need to digitize in the future. As a reference library, we can only grow, but physically there's a limit to how far we can grow. So contemporary material that we're taking in of that nature, a serial nature that's generated regularly uh, and that will only get bigger, we will digitize it in future. What we're really looking to do is have the people who supply us with that information do the digitizing for us. Um, there are a couple of big companies that uh, help dog shows with their records and we're looking to talk to them about rather than us send, them sending us in a physical catalogue with results marked in it that they will send us the digital file and then we can look, look after it from there. But as it is now, we are digitising all of this the hard way. And uh, as you've already mentioned, uh, you have an art gallery in the building. Yes. I've seen a picture of it and it looks very grand, but perhaps you can also describe it. Well, we have about uh, 600 pieces in our permanent collection. A lot of that is traditional oil painting, traditional sporting art, portraits of named champion dogs and so on. Uh, it also includes uh, artifacts, sketches, um, prints, contemporary photographs, 
all different sorts of material. We have a gallery space that anybody can come to visit here when they're visiting the library. Um, quite a lot of the collection is also scattered throughout the building because it is too big to fit in one gallery. So it is hanging on corridors, it's hanging on staircases, it's hanging on people's office walls. And by appointment, we do regular tours where people can come and view the whole collection. Okay. Uh, one final question. Um, we asked this to all our guests, but yes. what book are you reading now? And I'm intrigued to see if you are reading a book about dogs or you take a break and read something else. I am indeed. I am unusually enough reading a book about dogs at the moment. I do, don't try to bring too much of it home with me, but I am giving a talk at Chatsworth House, which is currently holding a major art exhibition on dogs um, in a couple of weeks' time, so I'm doing my, my swatting up for that. The book I'm reading is one called The Invention of the Modern Dog, Breed and Blood in Victorian Britain. It was published just last year um, by John Hopkins University Press and it is written by some of the team from Manchester University where they have got a centre for the history of science, technology and medicine. And it's a very, very comprehensive study of the dog in Victorian Britain and uh, the drive to, um, the, the move away from, from work um, and sport as the primary uh, drivers behind why people bred dogs and moving into this idea that you would have dogs for leisure and for competition and that they would have differentiated and standardised breeds. It's a very, very interesting book and I am, I'm cribbing from it heavily for the talk I'm going to give. Okay, sounds good. Back to the Victorian era and all the changes, the, the social changes. Yeah. Yeah. So many things start there. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, I want to say a huge thank you to uh, Kira Farrell for joining us. You can learn more about the UK's Kennel Club at their website thekennelclub.org.uk thekennelclub.org.uk There's a section on the site that's dedicated to its library and if you are in London the library is open Monday to Friday 9.30 to 4.30 but by appointment so do contact them if you want to make a visit. Um, it looks lovely and I really do recommend it. Thank you for listening, thank you Kira, and we will see you again next time.